praise the Lord. That's what uh, a Christian ought to do all the time. If God is good all the time, then Christians ought to praise him all the time. Let us um, let's continue our study in Ephesians. I am reminded of something I read about the maps that the First Nations peoples used to make, what are called North American Indians. There's a distinguishing feature about them that the white Europeans couldn't understand and they, uh, they would get lost. And that is, um, in, uh, in European cartography, that's map making, um, the, the maps are laid out proportional to distance. And there's scale, right? So whether it's an inch equals 10 miles or 50 miles or what have you. And um, they have their various boundaries and rivers and what have you. Uh, some of them, they try and indicate height, mountain ranges, whether by color or what have you. And there you can see the land mass and, and which way to go. What I read was that the Indian maps were quite different. And that they, they would draw their roots based on the time it took. And so when you could, you could go a very short distance, but you're going up a steep cliff or mountain that was treacherous, and it would take you a long time, and so that would be a very long line. And then you could sprint across a plain quite quickly, and so that would be a short line. And the, uh, the Europeans were confused with those kinds of maps because they're used to it. And I think that's how my preaching's going through this book. Um, here we're in for a long line and a very short distance, or, or very, as the crow flies. I think we might get through one verse this morning. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's uh, pray, shall we? Father, we thank you, Lord, for uh, <clears throat> uh, your grace and the privilege, God, of looking into thy word, having our own copies of the Bible, multiple copies, Lord, and so neglectful. Have mercy, Father. Be with us this morning as we consider this great salvation. Help our hearts and minds to take hold by faith on thy boundless riches. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> there are three. Last, uh, last time we were in uh, our study in Ephesians, we focused on saved by grace, through faith. Um, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We focused on that, that salvation is by grace, it was God's idea. God took the initiative. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Grace. See the picture of it so beautifully uh, demonstrated in the history of Esther, where she clothed herself in her royal attire, and she stood before the king, and she found favor in his sight, and he stretched forth the scepter. She came and touched it. Grace, uh, which, strictly speaking, means favor. Uh, goodwill, 
on the part of God. And uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and accessible to us. This salvation is uh, by grace, through faith. It is a gift of God. And he, that's the positive. And, when I, and the negative, that is not that it's a negative concept. It's just the emphasis, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And we see threefold address of works there. Our salvation is not by works. The Christian is the work of God. And that work of God in the Christian is that the Christian would do good works. All right? So there's a threefold chord of works there. And he starts, first of all, following up with his statement that we are saved by grace. And it's through faith and it's not of works. And this is where I would like to draw our attention to this morning from the Word of God and the, the obvious and necessary truth of it, that one is saved by God's grace and not by his own works, not of his own works. We want to explain that. Now, it is a strange thing to me that there is so much, or, or has been, I don't know how it is today, but through the centuries there have been controversies, and I suppose it exists today, the interplay between faith and works. And the scriptures are quite plain on the subject, it seems to me, but um, men will go to their extremes in one direction or the other. And uh, the scriptures don't do that. It seems to be our need to subordinate one truth to the other. Um, Paul addresses this quite, uh, quite clearly. Um, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Uh, some want to say that, um, that a soul is saved entirely by the work of God, that there is absolutely nothing you can do to bring anything to the table, so to speak, that you are saved entirely by God. Um, even your faith is given to you by God, and so you have done absolutely nothing in your salvation. And I suppose they do it sincerely because they would think that if anything was of you, then you would be able to boast and get some glory. But the scriptures clearly uh, speak against that notion. Um, there are many places that, um, that would address that. On the other hand, some would say it's essential to do some good works, and I have a list of them. Or you can't be saved. You don't really have faith if you're not doing these works. And it's unfortunate that we feel this need to, to get into these fights. I suppose the apostles themselves had to deal with it. And that's why they have written certain things in certain places. As far as we understand from history, the Ephesians, um, Paul went to Ephesus somewhere in the early 50s of uh, A.D., uh, I think he went there about 53 A.D. and left there about 56 A.D. And he wrote this epistle about uh, A.D. 61 when he was in Corinth. I think that's what uh, church tradition and church history has um, landed on. So church would be about eight years old. 
five years after the absence of the apostle, he would have preached to them. Remember, he was in Ephesus for quite a while, a year and a half at least. Um, I mean, from the first time he got there with those 12 to the time he departed and ended up in Corinth, I think was a space of three years. But there was a year and a half period of tremendous revival. And he would have preached thoroughly these things to them. Uh, <clears throat> just, before, just before Paul got to Ephesus, I believe, he wrote um, the letter to the Galatians. The first epistle that the apostle wrote would be the Galatian letter addressing this subject that he just touches on now. <clears throat> I think it would have been... Um, hmm, no, maybe I've got... Uh, I beg your pardon, I've got this quite wrong, muddled in my mind. Forgive me. Um, Paul would have written the Ephesian letter from Rome. He wrote the letter to the Romans from Corinth. <laughs> so, uh, in about... 56 AD, I think, Paul would have written the Roman letter, and 61 AD, he's writing to the Ephesians. And the point being that the thing that Paul touches on here, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of works, he's addressed them thoroughly in his writings already, and he just touches on them there. He's addressed this to the Ephesians thoroughly in his preaching and it's fresh on his mind. He's, he's written it to the Galatians to sort out the heresies sweeping through that whole provincial area. Think about the size of southern Ontario. The churches of Galatia. Not just one church, but this had swept through an entire region. And some somewhere while he's in Macedonia, he's thinking about going to Rome, which has been on his heart for years. And he writes this letter to the Romans, the first systematic theology written by the apostles, the letter to the Romans. And he fleshes this out in, in systematic detail. And so here, about five years later, he just touches on that which he has preached thoroughly and written thoroughly. By grace you're saved through faith, not of works. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. And the thing about boasting is it's a function of pride. You see this in children, especially boys. Uh, so, um, uh, naked and raw, male pride on display. You know, I'm the king of the castle. Just, I'm better than you boys. The competitive edge and the need to just like, you know, stand up there and flex and show how great they are. And as they grow up, for many, it becomes more subtle. And for some, they just never get the sense of how embarrassing they are to themselves, but boastful. Me, I'm great. Look at me. This kind of thing in, uh, in men in particular. Women have their way. I heard one man put it this way. Women are vain and men are proud. So. <laughs> but it boils down to the same thing. Look at me. Admire me. Um, twisted, corrupt through sin. Uh, the Lord's coming to be admired by people that he admires. So that's, you can think about that. The Lord wants you to sing to him, but he sings to you. It's very mutual with God. Uh, but we won't distract ourselves with that meditation now. It's this, this pride thing that's so awful. I heard one man say, even an arrogant man doesn't like an arrogant man. Nobody can stand an arrogant man, not even another one. Humble man loves everybody. 
might find some odious. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Just think, anyone that's had to look after little children in any, to any degree has met the impudent child. The, the child that is demanding and, and uh, you know, and you just, that child's getting nothing. Well, <laughs> some people lack the wisdom. They don't realize they're destroying the child's soul by catering to his demands. But you know what we're talking about? Demanding. God resists that. It's terrible for you. This was the thing that destroyed Satan. Paul was concerned with this. He says the elder must not be a novice, lest being lifted up with pride falls into the condemnation of the devil. Pride is so um, satanic, so evil, that to protect us from it, God wanted to make sure that nobody would have anything legitimately to boast about in their salvation. Right? And this is the thing I remember um, thinking some of these things through, perhaps in a way that I shouldn't have. Uh, But looking at what is the difference between the gospel of Christ and other belief systems. And it boils down to this very thing. Every other belief system, you save yourself by your own works. You call it. It could be an atheist uh, system, humanism, Uh, Buddhism, all of them, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam. You are going to make it to paradise by your own good works. And some people think that God's standards are as bad as the school systems. If you get a 50, you go in. If your good works tip the scales, more than your bad works, you go in. It's just a ridiculous idea. But this is what people are hoping for. And God's having none of it, not of works, lest any man should boast. Think of the pride. I, I made it, you know. I did it, right? The pride. Nobody's going to be there like that in heaven. And this was what the Lord Jesus uh, taught in his parables as well. <clears throat> Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, we do need to try and understand what that means. I remember having a dispute with a a brother years ago. We were in a different church. I don't feel a need to tell who it was or what the movement was. But they believed that once saved, always saved. And and this whole extreme. And we were going to go knocking on doors to witness to people. And before we went out, we were having a dispute about, I guess, what is the gospel. And he said, once saved, always saved, no matter what. So, all right, so let's tell them that on the door. So, well, you don't have to tell them that. So, well, why not? Because then they might just sin because they think they can get away with it. So, well, why not tell them that? It's the truth. Yeah, but we don't want them to sin. So, we want to keep the truth back. We're going to go and knock on them tell you, look, once you're saved, you're, you can never be lost. You're always saved, no matter what you do. I see your point. Next day he was back to it again. But uh, at least we got one day of agreement out of the thing. That's absurd, brethren. That's absurd. 
And they may, I don't want to mock, uh, mock the sincerity of their hearts, but this is not the truth. Let's look at this then. Paul, in his writing to the Romans, let's start in chapter 3. <clears throat> let's break in here in verse 5. What are we doing? If our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God have more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Right? So in chapters 1 and 2, chapter 1, Paul lays out the depravity of the Gentile world. Chapter 2, he lays out the sinfulness of the Jewish people as the covenant people of God. He says, we've already proven that they're all under sin. As it is written, verse 10, there is none righteous. No, not one. Even Noah, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is none, excuse me, their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we might look at that and say, that's extreme. I mean, they're good people. Well, the scripture is throwing a large blanket and, uh, and pointing out, there is none that seeketh after God. God draws people. Um, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. That doesn't mean there's nobody that never does a good deed or even many good deeds. But there is none that is a fountain of goodness. There are people that aspire to do good and do a lot of good, but they are afflicted with that core corrupt selfishness that manifests itself at least sometimes. You've met strikingly good people, but if you study them long enough, you will find they too are afflicted with sin. I remember this. Uh, easily moved from faith by my sight. And what I thought contradicted the scripture. I remember as a young man. I've, I've met two, two, on two different occasions. Men that looked to me like they were not sinners. Never sinned. Watched them day to day. Even tempered, kind, patient, everything. Thinking well this seems to contradict the Bible. Of course I had a very limited understanding of sin. He didn't love the Lord with all his heart. Probably didn't even love his neighbor as himself. But he was a good man. You know, he didn't have a temper. Any of those things working there in the cabinet shop. One day something painfully went wrong with a project. And for the first time I saw him curse and swear. And it, well, I was ashamed that I'd even doubted the word of God. But some things you learn by experience. I had a boss, a very decent man, very kind man, benevolent. He had all sorts of 
misfits for employees. They cost him money. He was benevolent to them, trying to help this young man stay out of jail and so on. A stranger to him. He was just doing good. And uh, he, uh, <laughs> the foreman turned out to be stealing and cheating, so he fired the foreman. And even though I was young and even though I hadn't finished my apprenticeship, he made me the foreman. And I uh, uh, lacked experience, so I did some inventory and I bought a lot of stuff. It's really easy to spend other people's money. Wives are very good at this too. Uh, and wow, did that bring out a side of him I hadn't seen before. This sweet, benevolent boss who when I was sick phoned, not to see when I was coming back to work, but when, how I was doing. Do you know how much money you cost me? I mean, it didn't, maybe. But there was fire in his eye. All have sinned. Love of money. Eh? He's a good man, though, for, by worldly standards. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. <sighs> Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, right? Um, so these are, this is the most extreme. But doth a good fountain send forth bitter water? Could a single cursing or blasphemy or vile expression come forth from the lips of Christ? No. And this is what the apostle is pointing out. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that is pure and righteous. Now we know, verse 19, that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. This is that it might be by grace, that it might be by faith, through faith, that the promise might be sure to everyone. This is not only the strong survive, those who are born with a noble character and some discipline and have some advantages in life, you know, they can make it to heaven. <laughs> That's what people think. Too bad for him, too bad for her. Yeah, what a miserable so-and-so. Glad I won't have to be with them in heaven. You know? That's how people think. And God has, has devised it that none can boast. And the apostle is going to show, show how and why. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. This was the purpose of the law. It was to expose the hearts of men and women to themselves. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul will bring this out in Romans 7. We don't have time to go there. It's not our focus. They, they, very far from, look, you know, I got a 90% with the commandments, you know. Surely that's good enough. This is how carnal people think. The law was meant to expose the heart of man and to kind of like a fence to keep men from completely degenerating and hurting themselves by the law. There's no flesh justified in his sight through the law. Uh, look, look at this, the, the Lord Jesus in dealing with this young man. And brethren, we could do very well to pay attention to the Lord and how he dealt with people. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. And behold... 
And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now what the Lord Jesus didn't do to this young man is point out all the sins in his life and in his heart, which he could have done. And I've seen men, I've been in conversations with men, trying to do that, trying to be the Holy Spirit, trying to convict you of your sinfulness, pointing at this and that that they think. Trying to be God. And the Lord. He could have. He could have roasted this young man. Matthew doesn't record. and None of the gospel writers. Quote the tenth commandment. Who remembers the tenth commandment? Not word for word. But you can just give. Thou shalt not covet. Sins of the heart. He didn't address those. The Lord wanted this young man to discover for himself the plague of his own heart. He start thinking about the commandments. Listen, which which commandments? You know, <laughs> I think it's uh, I think it's six hundred and thirteen mitzvot. How's my Hebrew on that? I got the thumbs up over fifty percent, right? Um, that the Jews have identified in the Torah, six hundred and thirteen commandments. I mean, be fruitful and multiply as a commandment, right? So they count them pretty, pretty strictly. Which one? You know, which ones do I have to keep? The Lord could have said all of them. But he, he listed a few of the ten, and then what's called the golden rule, to get this young man thinking and examining himself. He could have thought about, thou shalt not covet. He could have thought about the commandments, Open thine hand wide to thy brother. He could have thought about how many poor people and beggars he had ignored on his way to Christ. He could have thought about how luxurious his life was and how many around him were poor. He could have thought about Job and, and remember Job's words, When saw I any naked and did not clothe him? The fatherless was brought up with me from a child. The righteousness of the word of God preached to him continuously that he was covetous and stingy and selfish and mean. And he stopped his ears at it because he loved money. And he wanted to keep his self-indulgent life and still go to heaven. And his conscience was gnawing at him. And instead of just roasting him, the Lord Jesus, don't you love this Lord Jesus? Don't you want to be like him? So far from poking at people and look at this in your life or 
Or, you know, maybe kinder than that, but, you know, I can see. The Lord never did that. Look at Zacchaeus. The Lord just stood with him. Zacchaeus, I want to I have a meal with you today. Come on. Do you know him? He was so winsome. He loved like few people have a clue. Self-righteous, critical, proud believers walking around trying to do the work of God by pointing their finger at people. They don't know him at all. Like little babies poking other little babies in the eye. That's most Christians, sadly. We've seen it, haven't we? You see, toddlers, you know, and you think, oh, <laughs> they're playing, we hope, for now, right? Before the biting and all the other awful things start. Carnal Christians. Mm. But here's the Lord. And uh, he, uh, he gives this man the opportunity, and the man completely misses it. All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? You see, the Lord could have called him on that. Couldn't he? Could have totally hammered this young man. But he didn't. Mark adds the phrase, Jesus looking at him, loved him. Brethren, this will change how we speak to people if we look at them and love them. Wash their feet kind of love them, not uh, vaunted superiority. If thou wilt be perfect, go, sell. Give to the poor. This is, this is the heartbeat that Christ was getting at. Give to the poor. And he, he wrapped it up in a bundle and left it with the young man. He let this young man walk out of there with his dignity intact. And yet convicted of his own sin. This is a gracious He didn't hide the truth, but brethren, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And the truth that we share with people must be wrapped in grace. The young man went away, sorrowful. There was going to be no earning your way into heaven. The Lord, the Lord wanted him. See, this wouldn't have earned him heaven. This would have made the young man a disciple who would then follow Christ, who would then come to that awful discovery as Peter did, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That came from the lips of a man who could say, we have left all and followed thee. It's a self-discovery. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. By the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, foretold of the gospel. The righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through his blood, excuse me, through faith 
in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. This is the thing. Without the deeds of the law. In other words, the means of salvation is not by you receiving a list of commandments from God and you going about faithfully keeping them and at the end of a life of effort and um, self-effort, you obtain eternal life by your obedience to those commandments. It's not like that, the apostle says. That's not how to be saved. It's a gift of God. Uh, and he talks about Christ being set forth. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 3. So we're at the end of Romans 3. We'll come back there. Uh, John chapter 3. Famous, famous passage. <clears throat> Verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. <clears throat> John 3.16 is the famous passage. We can all quote it by heart. We won't read it again here. We'll turn to Numbers 21, to which the Lord Jesus refers. <clears throat> Numbers 21, verse 4, And they journeyed from Mount Hor. This is the people of Israel having escaped Egypt and been delivered and crossed the Red Sea and seen Pharaoh's armies um, drowned in the sea and all sorts of things. They've, they've, I think by this time they've had water come out from the rock. They've gone by the waters of Mara that were bitter and God showed Moses a tree and he cast it in and the bitter waters became sweet and drinkable. All these things have meandered. They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom and the soul of the people was much discouraged by, excuse me, because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. What did the manna represent? Yes, even more specifically. Jesus said, I am the bread that came from heaven. The manna represented Christ. This isn't stimulating enough to the flesh. Our soul loatheth this light bread. There was a despising of Christ, a complaining, a grumbling, a distrust of God from the redeemed. Awful. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died, showing them the poison that was in their own veins and hearts, that they had been stung in their hearts by Satan and embraced him. He gave them something in their bodies, a visual aid, if you will. Therefore, verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. 
And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, this is the thing. And this is where some dispute theologically, and I think this is completely unnecessary. How were those Israelites saved there in that situation? They had to look at the pole, the serpent. That was a work. But it wasn't a work of the law. It was a work of faith. More importantly, it was a work of obedience. It was an obedient heart. And the only way to be saved is to be obedient. Think of a drowning man and his rescuer throws him a life preserver and says, hang on. No. Down you go. That is quite different from someone swimming from sea to sea and making it to the other side, which is what works is all about. I remember being on the doors, knocking on the doors with a uh, fellow church member when we were at the Baptist church. His name was Rocky. We lived in the same square mile of houses, and we decided that we would knock on all the doors in the neighborhood. And uh, I remember talking to one man. He had been a Baptist before, and we were and back and forth. Uh, and <clears throat> and he said, "Well, I think you know the Bible's good for guidance, like the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita, and they're good for guidance, you know, and all these things." And we talked, and I shared Christ as best I could, how to be saved by faith. And he said. See, that's what I don't accept. You're saying that unless I accept your Jesus, I can't go to heaven. He was a West Indian man of some sort, I think. Just in thinking about him, my accent comes back a little bit. And that's what I can't accept. I said, well, sir, this is given freely to all men. What you're saying is that it's like um, to go to heaven. And Jesus is this bridge that I walk across. But a good swimmer could say, I can swim. Do you see out of his own mouth what he's saying? Why would you do that when you have a bridge? I said, sir, we are not talking about swimming across the Niagara River. We're talking about leaping across the Grand Canyon. You're not going to make it. He said, that's a little extreme. And so we departed. Self-righteousness. This man thinks he's going on his own good works. This man hasn't discovered the plague of his own heart. This man compares himself to the, the lower elements of society and pats himself on the back thinking he's a good person. He would do well to look at the commandments of God just on the love of money. Just on the love of money. Let alone whosoever looketh on a woman and covetousness and all of those things. He would be crying out for someone to save him from his inward corruption. So Paul has said we are saved not of works of the law. It's not that you do absolutely nothing. It's not universalism. All the wicked against their wills are being saved by the grace of God. It's that no one is earning this salvation, but you must obey. You must believe. Whoever looked, so you had to look. 
And you wouldn't do it if you didn't believe. It's a work of faith. God provided. Furthermore, they had to repent. They acknowledged, we have sinned. Pray for us. These are necessary conditions of salvation. The apostle is not saying what some extremists have said, that there is absolutely nothing you do to participate in your salvation. There are things you must do or you cannot be saved. You must obey from the heart the commandment of God or you cannot be saved. You will be damned with all the rebellious wicked if you do not. That's the thing. Set it on a pole. Everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. All right, so that, that's what they saw. Um, while we're on this theme of, of works, uh, not of works, lest any should boast, this is a strong principle in the human heart. Let's look at um, two more other passages to go back, and then we'll go back into Romans. One is a narrative from the Old Testament, Second Kings chapter 5, I believe. It's a story of Naaman. We won't read the whole story in the interest of time. We know the story. Naaman, the Syrian general or captain, and he's got leprosy. And all of the inconvenience that goes with that, people can't be close to him, but he was such a good military commander that instead of being banished to some colony or excluded, he still led the army. People had to keep a safe distance. The Syrians weren't quite like the Jews. He didn't have to cover his top lip, I suppose, and walk around crying out, unclean, unclean. But nobody wanted to catch the leprosy. There would have been some protocol. They'd bring their stuff, put it there, and, and so on. Some protocol. Nobody else wanted to catch this highly contagious uh, illness. And so the king of Syria sends Naaman to be healed. And the king of Israel is like, this guy's picking a fight. Who can do this? And so it goes. We know the story. Elisha uh, heard that he'd, he'd come. Um, and in, so Naaman... Naaman comes to the door. Uh, Naaman came with his horses. Now, 2 Kings 5, verse 9. And with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away, and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand, and call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place. And recover the leper. And he goes on. Are not Abana and far far rivers of Damascus. Better than all the waters of Israel. May I not wash in them and be clean. So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near. And spake unto him and said. My father. If the prophet had bid thee do some great thing. Wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee. Wash and be clean. Do you see the pride that was the problem? He wanted some great fanfare. He was a great person. Is it, this prophet must come out and do some great thing and then he'd be healed and he could kind of go away not just humbly thankful, but I got a special miracle conferred upon me. Prophet wouldn't even do him the dignity of coming before him. Go and wash. And they appealed to him. If he had given thee some great thing to do, you'd have done it. That's the thing. Not of works, lest any man should boast. This is the human heart. I want to do something and be saved. 
Friend, brethren, we have nothing to bring to the table. All have sinned. All are debtors. We'll look at one more. Uh, we'll look at a parable the Lord Jesus told in Matthew's Gospel. We were just in chapter 19. Let's go into chapter 22. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burnt up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid them bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, for there shall be, we there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This parable might seem kind of out there to us, who would do that? But if you read anything of the history of that time, this is how kings behave themselves. Let's read about it. The, the kings, um, the various procurators and regional kings, they were petty. Wow. They were like spoiled children. Killing tens of thousands of people over personal insults. It's recorded. It's history. Awful. And we live in what we call a liberal democracy, and make no mistake, some of those same kinds of people end up in leadership, but they are restrained. And if they had the same power, they would do the same things. We've seen some hints of that in the last few years. So the Lord is drawing on this known fact to extract a point. Not that God has this same pettiness any more than the parable of the unjust judge is supposed to reflect on the character of God. He's making a point. And this point is that this was grace. People excluded themselves and he sent his servants to draw to the wedding both bad and good. None of them were royalty. None of them were privileged. None of them had any right to be there. They were just brought in with this dragnet invitation. The people of a nicer character and disposition and upbringing and not harming anybody and so on. Faithful citizens, that would be the good in the context that none is good save God. And the bad, these would be the thugs. Guys looking to take advantage of someone. Maybe a robber. Everybody. And the wedding was furnished with guests. Now it, it is to be assumed that the king, and they were wealthy, uh, would provide appropriate attire. 
for all the guests so that he was not offended by how pathetic we look by comparison. He wanted this to be uh, filled with guests and properly attired guests. And he finds this one man, no wedding garment, right? This is the point. Everything had been provided. The invitation, the feast was there. All things are now ready. Come to the banquet. There's a feast laid. Messengers sent. Everyone invited, brought in. And this man refused to wear the clothes that were provided for him in his pride. And this speaks of the self-righteous person that has not clothed himself with the righteousness of Christ. Paul said, one thing I do, right? Forgetting those things which are behind, pressing forward. Talked about um, that he, he wanted to be found in Christ, not having his own righteousness but the righteousness which is of God by faith. The first step, if you will, in clothing ourselves with this righteousness of Christ is trusting entirely in Christ crucified for our sins. Abraham believed in the Lord and God counted it to him for righteousness. And we believe on the Lord Jesus who bore our sins. And his, his, uh, our sins were counted his. And his righteousness is counted ours. We believe, we trust in the Lord. But that obedient, believing heart must be the permanent state of the Christian. It's not like a fire insurance policy. You can sign it once and then live as you please. It is a life of worshipful obedience. He is the Savior of those that obey him. Not anymore as the law, these outward commandments that we keep, but a law written in the heart. One that partakes of the life of Christ. Not me trying to keep a commandment that my nature is contrary to, but me yielding to an inward life that I received when I was born again. This is a way, as the hymn writer put it, this is a way that all may go. This is too hard for none. The garment, the righteousness of Christ is provided freely for every soul. And our exercise is to walk continuously believing and trusting in him. Not of works, lest any man should boast. There's no pride in this. The biggest hindrance... Well, I shouldn't say the biggest. There are some big hindrances uh, that many Christians experience. One of the ones that I never had was they are naturally quite virtuous in many respects. I never had that problem. <laughs> I had wished in the early days I did. But so many Christians, they, they, before they were saved, in terms of humanity, they were pretty nice people. There was a lot going for them, you know. And so what happens, they, they, they're aware they've done these sins and they believe on the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. But they go off and they, they just live by their own natural goodness that they had before. And every now and again they bump into something that's way beyond that and that's when they sin. I, I slipped, I fell or, you know, whatever, I was carnal, I was out of the spirit. Well, friend, you're actually out of the spirit all along. And it was only revealed to you when you bumped into something bigger than you. 
And that's why you failed there. <laughs> um, and what these experiences are meant to do is to acquaint us with the fact that we need to be drawing continually on the life of Christ. Now, those of us who are really needy, it can be kind of miserable at the start because you can't even get through you know, a good day without, <laughs> without knowing that you're a sinner. If everything's going well, you're still not making it. But what that does for some of us is it draws us in, drives us in desperation to rely on Christ for every hour. And what was to, <laughs> what was such a deficit that the start becomes such a blessing? You develop the habit of relying on Christ all the time. And you can begin to say with the apostle, I can do all things through Christ, strength. Clothed with him. That's the thing. That's the garment provided for all of us. Him. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness, which is of God, by faith. This is the thing, fr friends, brethren. Uh, Paul wrote this to the, uh, to the Romans in greater detail. <clears throat> Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. He picks this up again in, in, later in Romans. Romans uh, 11. Yes. <clears throat> Verse 5. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace then it is no more of works. Otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works then it is no more grace. Otherwise work is no more work. He's very clear on his definitions. The reward of God is himself. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, right? The thief on the cross turned in repentance. There were two with him. People talk about the good thief and the bad thief. I'd like to meet a good thief. Like, what does that look like? <laughs> I mean, it's not a contradiction. Good thief. He's being crucified, not for being good. Not being good anything. How about a penitent thief? There was a penitent thief and an unrepentant thief. One railed on Christ. Some Messiah, you are, save yourself and us. <laughs> and the other rebuked him. Probably joined with him in that first, I don't know. But in any case, I speculate, I hypothesize that this repentant thief was one of the Lord's disciples formerly. He said, this man has done nothing amiss. He, he had some intimate knowledge of Christ. Perhaps he was one of the 70, I don't know. Perhaps he was one that, at the saying, many of his disciples turned back and walked no more with him. And then he said to the 12, will you also go away? A former disciple who was disillusioned when he realized that this man wasn't going to give us a wealthy kingdom and maybe he decided Barabbas would give him a high position. 
And that all failed. He, he totally, he turned his back on Christ when he didn't get what he wanted. Now he's being crucified. And he repents. He's completely wasted his life. And he repents. And he asks for clemency. Remember David coming back into his kingdom? Shimei runs out there thought like, yikes, I'm toast now. I was stoning and cursing him. Total fake. Let not my Lord regard the sins of his servant. <laughs> um, Ziba, <laughs> who had tricked, you know. Oh, everyone begging for mercy. And the king bestowing clemency. This is appropriate for a king coming into his kingdom to be showing mercy even on his enemies, even on those that don't deserve it. This was the picture. And here this man, Lord. Remember? What's he mean by that? Remember how I used to follow you and then I turned back and followed Barabbas or somebody uh, because I despised what you were after? That's not what he's saying. Lord, have mercy on Accept my pathetic last-minute repentance and grant me pardon of thy kingly clemency. What works did this man have to show to Christ? Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. This was the first to look at that serpent on the pole. And he lived. This day thou shalt be with me. In paradise. Not of works. Lest any should boast. From there the apostle will go into. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Unto good works. Which God hath before ordained. That we should walk in them. Our own works are nothing. Saved by grace. And now God makes us. And he puts within us that good fountain. Christ himself. And out come all the good works of Christ. We'll look at those. Next time in our study. Brethren. Let us lay hold. Fresh on this. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Your salvation is not of works. Lest any man should boast. The Christian should be the humblest, least self-righteous person on the planet. Boasting in God we boast all the day long. And praise thy name forever. Showing forth the goodness of Christ. In our thoughts and words and deeds. We look at those works. That God works in his children. Another time. Let us pray, shall we? Father, we tremble at such grace. Surely, Lord, you have done all things well. Offered pardon to everyone, laid all sins on Christ and set him forth, calling every wayward sinner home. None can boast of his own goodness and none need fear his own badness. All of us, Lord, Lord, 
under the glorious invitation to look and be saved at Christ crucified for our sins. Father, grant us to be vessels of this glorious gospel that others also might look and live. Commend each one to the word of thy grace, Lord, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. May we all partake of this and share it with others. Pray thy blessing upon all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.